of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh. That's what we confess in the Nicene Creed in the, the words of the title of the sermon for today. He was made man. And when the Apostle John writes the words of verse 14, he's got in mind everything that he has said since the beginning of the chapter. The word of whom he speaks is that word who was in the beginning with God, who was very God of very God. The word which created the universe, the light of the world, the true light which has come into the darkness of a world of sin, life itself that came into the place of death and decay. The creator entered into his creation. That's what John is talking about when he says the word became flesh. And when he says the word became, he doesn't mean it the way he means later when he describes the miracle that Jesus does at the wedding in Cana when the water became wine. Because when the water became wine, it changed from one thing to another. John's not saying the word God became flesh human, as in he stopped being God and started being human. But he's speaking here of the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation, which we confess beautifully in Lord's Day 14. What do you confess? When you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. The word became flesh. Romans 8, 3, the apostle says, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He has our flesh, he has our blood, human flesh, human blood. Now, the apostle, the Holy Spirit through the apostle, chooses the word flesh deliberately. There are different ways of talking about our humanity. And flesh is probably the word you would choose if you want to emphasize the weakness and the frailty of our humanity. It draws attention to who we are in our fallenness, in the weakness of our nature, that we suffer the consequences and the brokenness of a world devastated by the fall. It's not talking about flesh in terms of sinfulness, because Christ is without sin, but it's talking about flesh in the sense of human nature as it was not created to be. Human nature suffering the results of the fall. And so our Lord Jesus, as he takes on true human nature, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was exhausted. He experienced loss and the death of loved ones. He wept at the graveside, he was betrayed, he was tortured. He was so weak and burdened that he could not carry on. And he fell under his own cross, the weight of his own cross. And he was killed. That's what it means to be flesh. The word became 
flesh. This is something which we can't wrap our heads, our minds around because it's, it's seemingly impossible, brothers and sisters. These are two things which cannot be brought together. Yet, God has brought them together in our Savior. You go to Isaiah chapter 40, and you look at verse 6 through to 8. And, and, and the prophet there describes this unbridgeable gap between the Word and flesh, between the eternal and the passing away. Look at it there, Isaiah 46, 40 verse 6 to 8. A voice cries, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. How different can you get? And yet, our Lord says, the word became flesh. The eternal word, the word of God, the word with God, the word who is God became flesh. Flesh. He became what we are, sin accepted. He entered into the experience of our existence. He took upon himself our infirmities so that he could wither, so that he could fade, so that he could pass away. The mystery of the incarnation, brothers and sisters, is so great that there's no analogy possible. I, I like using analogies to try to drive home the beauty of the gospel, to help us understand it with things that are near to us. There's no analogy possible. There's nothing like it. You know, every false religion and every philosophy of man describes how man can become God. And it is only Christianity, it is only the true faith that teaches the opposite, that God was made man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and the, the verb here that the apostle uses for dwelt is the verb which, if you translated it literally, is tabernacle, tented. And it evokes all the teaching and the experience and the revelation of God in the Old Testament. God was in the midst of his people, a holy God, in the midst of a sinful people, dwelling in the tabernacle where his glory was. He tabernacled among us, and in general, that's humanity and the people of God, but, but more specifically in our text, the us of that first phrase is the we of the second phrase. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So, so John's talking about the experience of the apostles, and apostles are, by definition, the eyewitnesses of the glory and the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of our Lord. So those are the ones that he has in mind here. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, isn't that a bit surprising? We think of Philippians 2, that even though he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he, he humbled himself and was found in, in human form. So we, we, we often confuse or equate the incarnation with the humiliation. And so why is, why is John talking about glory? Isn't incarnation humiliation? Well, no. No, it's not. That Christ is human is not in itself per se humiliation because he's human right now. As a true man in heaven right now, no humiliation there, just glory. The fact that God was made man, the fact that the Son of God was made flesh is not in itself humiliation. It, it allowed him to enter into his state of humiliation and, and to suffer the things he needed to suffer to save us. But the fact of the humiliation, it's, uh, the fact of the incarnation itself is not humiliation. So even in his state of humiliation as he came to this earth to suffer, even as he, he veiled his glory during the time that he was on earth, it was impossible to hide who he was, totally. Can you imagine taking the sun out of the sky and maybe reducing its size a bit and then putting it inside you? Do you think people would notice if it kept the same intensity of its shining, the power of its light and, and heat, do you think people would notice? I think they would notice. It's hard to hide something like that. Well, the, the miracle of the incarnation is even a greater miracle than that, the veiling of the glory of God. And the, the apostles walked with him for years. They saw him. They heard him. They lived with him. They witnessed what he did and who he was, and they knew, even though it was veiled, they knew who he was. They knew his glory. Because the, the Bible says, Hebrews 1, 3, that the Son, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2 verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, we, we have the, the spirit of, of glory on us. We have the glory of God dwelling in us as we're temples of the Holy Spirit. But, but it's a reflected glory in our case. It's like Moses on the mountain in the presence of God. His, his face is reflected reflecting the light of the glory of God, but Jesus radiates with his own glory, which is the very glory of God himself. And they saw it. They saw it. You think right at the beginning of his ministry when he did that first miracle in Cana, and you look at John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. They saw who he was. They saw his glory. 
when he changed the water into wine. They saw his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration when his, sun, when his face shined like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And they heard the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son. They saw his glory. And they saw his glory as he with divine authority told the wind and the waves to calm down, to be at peace. They saw his glory when he created food for thousands of people from five loaves and two fish. They saw his glory when he healed the sick and raised the dead and when he conquered death itself. And they saw his glory when they saw him in his resurrection appearances with a glorified body. And they saw his glory when he was lifted up to heaven to the right hand of the majesty on high on ascension day. Stephen, as he was dying, saw the heavens open and saw Jesus in glory. And Paul, on the road to Damascus, he saw the bright light of the glory of the ascended and ruling and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. They knew who he was. They saw his glory. And again, this is, this is the glory of God in the man Jesus, not a reflected glory but a radiating glory that comes out of who he is. The glory that was his before the foundation of the world, the glory that belongs only to God. And because they saw it, they confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, because you have glory, O Lord Jesus, that is glory as of the only son from the Father. And we worship you. You've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's sometimes it's just beautiful. It's not sometimes, it's always beautiful how the scriptures connect so much. And sometimes it's breathtaking and how many connections there are. And here's just one more, because when, when, when the apostle says, full of grace and truth, he's evoking, he's, he's, he's kind of quoting Exodus. You remember Exodus 33, when, when Moses said, God, show me your glory. And then you remember Exodus 34, and we'll just go there for, for a quick moment, Exodus 34, when God does that, he, he shows his glory to Moses. And there in 34 verse 5, he descends in the cloud. He stands there and he proclaims who he is. So Exodus 34 verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. You see those words there, steadfast love and faithfulness? Well, that's... Those are the words that are translated here in our text as grace and truth. I won't go into all the details of how they connect, but that's basically what we have here in our text. The translation into Greek of those concepts here in Exodus 34 verse 6. Steadfast love, covenant love and grace, and then faithfulness, which and that word is connected to the word amen, that, that of truth and being faithful to the truth. So that's what he's evoking here. 
that what we see, the glory that we see in Christ is the very glory that God showed to Moses on the mountain. It is the glory of God himself. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can't understand what that means. Just like we can't understand the Trinity, and we can't understand the two natures of Christ either. But we can confess what the Scripture teaches us. And we can worship God for who he reveals himself to be. And as we come to the end of this sermon, I just want to draw your attention to what it means for us. Our glorious Savior, the Word became flesh, is full of grace and truth. What, 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 what does that change in your life? What difference does it make? If John 1.14 was never written, was never true, how would our lives be different? Brothers and sisters, we wouldn't have life if this was not written, if this was not true. He is full of grace. That means, that means we don't get what we deserve, and we get what we don't deserve. We get peace with God. Man sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Man, since the fall, has been at war with God, expelled from God's presence, banished from God's kingdom. Ever since the fall, there's been this war between man and God. And now, in the incarnation, God and man are together in one person. You know, we're, we're singing there the, the hymn number 19, and it, it speaks about the end of war. And, and in the first place, it, it speaks about, you know, the boots trampling soldiers worn, the garments rolled and gore, the raging flames will all consume to mark the end of war. Well, where did war come from? War came from when our relationship with God was broken, then every other relationship was broken between husband and wife, between parents and children, between neighbors, between people and animals, and between people and the creation. Everything entered into conflict. Because if we're not at peace with God, we can't be at peace with each other. And so what God does to solve the problem is he makes peace between man and God, by making man and God unite in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The war is over. Because for God and man to be in conflict means that Christ has to be battling with himself. That's not going to happen. Christ cannot be divided against himself. So what do we have? We have a new human race headed by the last Adam who is true man and true God in one person. You know, sometimes people say, sometimes a catechism student might say, Pastor, in heaven, is there a danger that maybe there'll be another fall and we'll go through it all again? You know, it happened in paradise. Can it happen in heaven? Well, no, it can't. Because for a fall to happen in the new heavens and the new earth, 
you would have to set Christ against himself. For man to be in conflict with God would, would need for Christ to be in conflict with himself. That cannot be. There's no possibility of a fall. There's no possibility of ever there being a separation between God and man again. And that's why the apostle says that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of Jesus. Because God's love for humanity is literally bound up in the person of his own son. That's why it's so important, brothers and sisters, that we who are all children of Adam the first, that we make it the greatest goal of our life, that we be found to be children of Adam the second, that we be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, because when we are in him, then nothing can ever separate us from God again. Full of grace. We get what we don't deserve. We get peace with God. And full of truth. Full of truth. You know, truth is an abstract word, but in the Bible, truth is a very physical thing. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Truth in the scriptures refers not to some abstract philosophical concept, but it refers to, to reality. And when God in Christ takes on a human nature, when the Word becomes flesh, He is full of truth. He, he brings us reality. What do I mean by that? Well, if you, you can look at the opposite to understand. The world rejects the Christ, rejects God, rejects the truth. You look at Romans chapter 1, the end of that chapter, as the unrighteous, as the ungodly suppress the truth by unrighteousness, the consequence is as they lose grip on reality. Because when you deny the truth, when you suppress the truth, when you hate the truth, then you, you, you lose your grip. And you can't define what a woman is, or a man, or what marriage is, or what family is. And you think that lust is love, and, and love is lust, and you think that, that people are like Mr. Potato Head. You just take parts off, and you put parts on, and you sew on parts, and you cut off parts, and you pump them full of unnatural hormones, and you can just change who you are. Because when you lose the truth, you lose your grip on reality. That's what we see in the darkness of the world around us, brothers and sisters. And when you suppress the truth, then there's no grace. You reject grace, and you only experience judgment. That's why in the religion of our world today, the new religion, which is bringing everybody to their knees, In that religion, there is no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's only judgment. There's only judgment of people judging each other. And then over it all is the judgment of the wrath of God. Why? Because they deny the truth. Because they deny Jesus. Because they deny those words which make all the difference. He was made man. If you deny that, you lose 
all grip on reality and you enter into and remain in delusion. When you deny the word became flesh, you cannot live as a real human being. But you begin to taste eternal judgment. And so brothers and sisters, the words of our text are not just an interesting theological concept here, but they are gospel. These words we need to believe. They change our life. They change our eternal destiny. We need to embrace the truth. We need to know the truth. We need to love the truth because the truth will set us free. Because when we know him, the word incarnate, we know what is real. We know what is really human. We know what real life is. We know what, we know what real love is because Jesus is the truth. Jesus is truly human. And God God should know, right? God created humans, and God was made man. If anyone knows what it is to be really human, it's him. And so as you look at your Savior, the Word made flesh, understand that as a true man, he sanctifies and makes holy every stage of your life. You know, the Bible says that we were conceived and born in sin. And Jesus, Jesus, that's true, but Jesus comes and changes that. As he was conceived and born in holiness and innocence. And so the holy conception of our Savior makes our conception and birth holy. It sanctifies our beginnings. He was a child. And so he knows what it is to be obedient and respectful to sinful parents that sometimes lose their temper or make bad decisions, who are sometimes wrong and make mistakes. To still honor them, he knows what that is. And he sanctifies family dynamics and relationships, which aren't always perfect, especially around the holidays when things are busy. He went through puberty. His body started changing as hormones were, levels were changing, and his, he was maturing sexually as well. He knows what that is. And he sanctifies the maturing and the and the and the and the, the maturing of our bodies as well. He was an adult. He knows what it is to be an adult, a single adult, seeing all your friends of your age getting married and still being single. He knows that. He sanctifies that experience as well. He knows what it is to go out and do your daily work for most of the years that he was on earth. As an adult, he was just working for his dad or working in his dad's line of work anyway. The Bible hardly says anything about many, many, many years. Lord Jesus just got up early and made his lunch and went off to work. He knows what that is. He knows what it is to have to pay the bills. And even though he didn't get married to a woman, he knows what marriage is. He ordained it. He created the institution, and he knows what it is to love his bride so much that he laid down his life for her. He knows what it is to feast and celebrate, and he knows what it is to be hungry and thirsty and poor and sick and tired and exhausted. He knows what it is to mourn at a graveside. He knows what it is to suffer pain. He knows what it is when his body doesn't work the way 
It's supposed to. He knows the darkness of the agony of the mind. And he knows what it is to face death. Brothers and sisters, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Not because of some reading that he's done about it. But because he has lived on this earth as a real human being. He understands you. He knows what it's like because he's done it. And he did it perfectly. He did it right. No matter how hard things were, no matter how much the the affliction was pressing down upon him, he did it right. He lived for God's glory. He loved God. He loved his neighbor without sin perfectly. And that holiness... That holy life of that true human being, Jesus Christ our Lord. That perfection and that glory of a perfect human life. He gives it to you. He shares it with you. It's yours. It's in your account. So that when God looks at you, he sees a perfect human life. Life. That's what it means, my brother, my sister, when your life is hidden with God in Christ. That's what it means when it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what it means when the Bible says the Word became flesh to cover you, to fill you, to transform you with His holy glory. He did it for you. He did it to make your life perfect. In him, both now and forever. Amen.